Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This Marine Corps veteran is chief executive officer of his own company, Colomer Advisories. His name is Timothy Colomer. He disarms business landmines to blow up your success. He implements an EOS system of simple tools and concepts that helps leadership teams drive success with their own vision and core value sets. I was humbled and honored to have him on the show today. And thank you for listening to another another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Tim went into the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, which is called EOD. He went through a rigorous training process. He did really good and uh, moved up the ladder. He also went through the Marine Corps' Chemical Biological Incident Response Force, CBIRF. He was stationed with his younger brother. They did a lot of cool things together. Some might think it was rather dangerous, but they helped to clear the anthrax scare out of the U.S. Senate. Later on, he would go on to join the multinational forces West, and he was placed on a small fob. Was that Afghanistan or Iraq, Tim? That was Iraq. Okay, so he went... He did all kinds of interesting things with, you know, EOD, bomb disposal, you know, uh, detonating things. And then he was blown up. And that's we're going to hear a little bit more about that. You know, what blowing up was all about and how he was able to overcome that. He came back, exited the Marine Corps. We'll talk a little bit about that. He trained as a manager for the USMC EOD field, served two years at the FBI Explosives uh, United in Quantico. We know a little bit about Quantico. He finished grad school at George Washington University, decided to try out corporate America. He worked for Halliburton, doing some interesting things with the oil business, and then it crashed. He came back home, bought a franchise. We're going to find out a little bit about which one he bought. He's going to tell us about it. And before long, he had eight locations and over 100 employees. Well, he's changed his his trajectory, and what he wants to do now is help businesses grow, entrepreneurs. He's calling his time-tested business tools EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. He reached out to me on LinkedIn. Somehow, though, I think we've been in the same circles. But uh, he's here with us today. Let's uh, let's welcome Timothy Colomer. Thanks, Tim, for being here. Yeah, John, I really. Appreciate the introduction, man. Thank you very much. And, uh, I've been looking forward to doing this with you for for a couple of weeks, watching you bounce around to uh, to a different couple of locations. Guys, I was a little concerned for your health, especially with this this crazy virus going on. Isn't it nuts, man? We were talking about it. We just left Orlando. Several thousand people there. You know, up in Orlando. You know, up in where Walt Disney World is, which they just shut down. Because of this coronavirus. Yeah, well, thanks for thinking about me, man. That's what good Marines do, good NCOs. They think about their friends and buddies. So thank you for that. I, I think I'm healthy. <laughs> Let's Orlando, t- yeah. you know, Orlando is actually where I grew up at. And I got to tell you, uh, having, having, man, I've lived there since 
1985, right around there is when we moved to Orlando. And I can't remember a time in, in Orlando's history when Disney World shut down longer than a day or two because of some of the most catastrophic hurricanes. But to see Disney shut down, and they're shut down now officially through the end of March, that's pretty wild. You, you, I've never seen that before. Yeah, you know, and I'm a Floridian too. I was raised in uh, just down the road from you here in Sarasota, and I got to admit, I had never seen that either. So maybe either there's a real hyper scare going on, or this is serious, and they they're not telling us everything. You know, whatever the case is, it's definitely quiet out there in some places. For sure. Well, you said you mentioned raised in Orlando. Tell us about that, Tim. Tell us about growing up and and how you even made it to the Marine Corps. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, we wound up in Orlando. My dad was a police officer up in Chicago, Illinois, and in the Chicago area, he worked in a place called Oak Brook, which is a little bit smaller of a suburb of Chicago. Really dangerous job through the seventies and the earlier parts of uh, of the eighties. And when it come came time for him to retire, if you've ever spent any time up north, especially in the Chicago area, you know how brutal the winters are there. And he was sick of it. So uh, we uh, we decided to go down to Florida. We took a family vacation, took a little bit of a cruise down to the Bahamas, came back to the Disney World thing and Epcot and everything. And it was me and my brothers and, and my mom and dad. And we fell in love with it. And I don't know if it was a knee jerk reaction or maybe even like my dad strategically planned to take us on vacation down there to kind of inspire us to want to move. But within, man, I would say a month and a half, the house was packed up. It was on the market. It was on the way to getting sold. And we were in a in a, uh, a small vehicle driving from Chicago down to Orlando to restart our life in Orlando. And it was really cool. Culture shock a little bit. I mean, I was in fifth grade. So, I mean, how much culture shock do you really expect from <laughs> exactly. I get you. But, yeah, but the weather, definitely different. The people... I don't know if they're friendlier or just different. You know, the Southern culture and Southern hospitality was definitely different in Orlando than it is up north. Right. Yeah, it was cool. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't have a remarkable childhood. Um, you know, nothing stands out to me other than both my parents, my mom and my dad were heavily, heavily involved in the community. My mom was always at the baseball games, either taking score or doing concession stands. She seemed to be kind of like the community mom, right? So we would always have, my friends would come over to our house. We would go swimming in our pool. If there was, you know, a Halloween party or a Christmas thing at the school, my mom would make the, you know, the goodie bags and all that other stuff. And and very similarly, my dad was involved in the community. Um, I can't remember a year that went by that he wasn't one of the coaches for little league or peewee football or he wasn't at our school or spending time literally in the community as a police officer but yeah very inspiring um instilled in my brothers and i this sense of community the sense of and i don't even know if it was a term back then but kind of the sense of like servant leadership like putting somebody before you isn't just the right and, and, you know, I was brought up Christian. It's not just the right and the Christian thing to do, but it's also, you know, it's just the right thing to do as, as, as an American. Roger that. Do you, did you have anybody in your family lineage or that was in the military or did you have somebody that you looked up to? I did. And, and I appreciate the question. I, it was my grandfather, my mom's father, my grandfather, 
was uh, was in the army during World War II. He uh, he stormed the beaches of Omaha. He received two Purple Hearts, Bronze Star. However, he passed away uh, when I was pretty young. Uh, I believe that I was maybe five, six years old. I have fond memories of him. He was a great guy, uh, but unfortunately, I didn't get to I didn't get to grow up or mature and have you know more mature conversations than Big Bird um, with with the, with a guy. I do look up to him, and fortunately, they were uh, my mom's got a big family. They held on to his float book. They held on to his deployment book. A couple of his awards have actually got his. Is uh, a couple of his awards, a couple of his medals, and being able to look back in history, even without him sitting next to me, to look back through his deployment book, you know, really, really sparks inspiration, and and I can kind of understand now what he went through. Well, you know, I know you went in like right after high school. You were 17 years old. What was going on with you then? Because that's you know, Marine Corps is a big step for a young man. And uh, did you expect what you found when you got there? It's, it's, it's a funny story, actually. I wasn't a troublemaker when I was in high school. Um, not not kind of the you know your average run of the mill troublemaker. You know, I would uh, I would get in a little trouble here and there with my friends, but it was it was mostly around you know experimenting with beer or uh, staying out too late. I, I certainly wasn't breaking into cars or doing anything stupid, but uh, my parents definitely saw a need for discipline for me. You know, my my dad being a former police officer and, and my mom working in, uh, in the community, they didn't, they didn't want me to be around the round or around the wrong people. So they, they kept me hanging out with the right people in, and they knew I wasn't college bound, not because I wasn't smart. It was just because it wasn't interesting to me. I love traveling. I got to take a trip to Costa Rica, uh, when I was in high school, it was one of those, you know, it was kind of a, uh, a spring break, kind of extracurricular thing. Right. You know, once I discovered that I like traveling, I was like, well, damn the torpedoes. I want to go see the world. So I came home from school one day and, uh, and sure enough, there's this Marine Corps recruiter sitting in my dining room table. I did not know, by the way, you know, total transparency. I didn't know what the Marine Corps recruiter uniform looked like. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't, hadn't even really considered the military and my dad called me in. He was sitting there with the recruiter and he said, hey, this guy wants to talk to you. Well, I kind of, you know, knee jerk reaction. I thought it was a cop. I was like, hey, I'm not getting in trouble. I don't know what this guy's here for. Kind of got defensive, I suppose. He's like, no, he's with the Marines and this is what we're going to do. And he sat down with me and it was just your gosh, your back of the cereal box recruiter pitch. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to college. What are you going to do with your life? He broke out a couple tiles, like uh, like recruiting tiles. One said money, one said education, one said travel. And I was like, boom, I honed right in on it. I said, I want to travel. He said, well, son, I got a deal for you. So, I mean, within, gosh, only a couple of weeks, I'd taken the HASBAP, signed up for the Marine Corps. My parents signed, uh, pardon me, signed a waiver because I was 17 years old. And uh, all I had to do was graduate high school. And I was on a Greyhound bus to Paris Island. So you did travel. You went right up the road, East Coast Marine. I've heard about that <laughs> rivalry. And uh, what did you find when you got to Paris Island? What was happening? Oh, it was the worst. I didn't know what to expect. I honestly didn't. I, I watched the Full Metal Jacket movie maybe once or twice, tongue in cheek, kind of thinking, no way it's going to be that intense. 
I wouldn't say I was a hippie when I was growing up because I wasn't. I was, uh, but I was, I was kind of laid back. I grew up surfing over there on the East Coast in Cocoa Beach and just hanging out with my friends. I've never been exposed to anything that intense before in my life. So uh, showing up to boot camp, and it's just like every uh, every movie that you see. The drone instructor gets on the bus, starts just chewing into you, yelling at you, get off my bus, get off my bus, get on the yellow footprints, and, and there you are. I mean, they take away every bit of um, personality that you have. As soon as they strip you down and shave your head, you're just another number. And it's literally, you get assigned a laundry bag number. It sounds kind of silly. You know, it's alphanumeric. I was, uh, my last name starts with the C, so my laundry bag number is 14. And here we are, some 30 years later almost, and I still remember my laundry bag number, so that should tell you how indelible that was. Did you, uh, did you feel like you had made a mistake when you were on those yellow footprints? Not a mistake. I don't feel like I made a mistake, but I can tell you what, I wish I would have done a little bit more homework. I remember thinking that to myself, like, what in the world did I get myself in for? Maybe I should have studied a little bit harder in school. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. You're thinking, holy crap. I'm in college. <laughs> Well, and, uh, and it is kind of a rude awakening. Of course, the Army is a little bit different, but all the same type of stuff. And, you know, I think it was like within the first couple of hours when we were bouncing quarters off of beds that I was like, holy cow, I never had anybody tired to tell me how to make a bed or a bunk. And I was wondering, what the heck am I doing? So, yeah. you know, Paris Island has that reputation. Can you think of one instance in uh, boot camp at Paris Island that you went, holy cow, this this stuff is for real. There's a couple instances that stand out in my mind the most, more than anything else, is one is the gas chamber. If you're a civilian fan or listener or patriot that's listening to the show and, and you've heard stories about the gas chamber, let me tell you what, take every story that you've heard about the gas chamber and crank it up by about 100 times, and it's that intense. You you line all of these guys line up, you get your gas mask on, you get, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes of instruction on how a gas mask works. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up during the Cold War. So, you know, NBC warfare, nuclear, biological, chemical warfare was still a real thing. And honestly, on a personal level, it scared the bejesus out of me. So putting on a gas mask, going into the gas chamber they cranked that vial off. And now, now, I mean, it's not so thick that you can't see your hand in front of your face, but you know, there's a lot of gas in there. And then they tell you to take your gas mask off and you take it completely off your head and you hold it out in front of you, holding your breath the best you can. Your eyes are closed and uh, there's nothing that you could do to stop from breathing. Um, you got to take your breath and it scorches your, your lungs. It scorches the inside of your nose. If you have your mouth open, you can taste it. It's awful. And your body's, your body's fighting it. I mean, it's an instantaneous reaction to just pain and your skin is on fire. It is the, it is the freaking worst. Now, the more you train in it, obviously the more, more accustomed you get to it. But that, that was an initial shock that, uh, that I just didn't expect. And, and I survived it, it bit, it did its job, right? It built confidence that I could survive in that type of environment and I depended on my gear and uh, you don and clear your gas mask, you're breathing fresh air again. You feel like crap, but man, you made it. And I thought that was uh, that was really, really cool. Um, the other thing that stood out in my mind from boot camp was the uh, the confidence course. 
Now, there's a short little obstacle course that's about 100 yards long. I'm talking about the big, long ropes course that it's not often seen on TV where you're sliding down a rope on your belly 30, 40 feet off the ground over some water. You know, you're climbing up big A-frames and, and huge stairways. Really, really cool obstacle course that just kind of reinforce, you know, like, like, dude, you're in it. You're, you're in it. You're doing it. You got your rifle. You're running running these courses, stabbing the dummy with the uh, bayonet, and uh, there's no turning back. And boot in graduation. Now, I can't think of too many times in my life where I've been more proud. Who, um, who showed up at your graduation? My whole family did. As a matter of fact, mom, dad, two brothers, everybody, uh, everybody drove up from Orlando and uh, showed up at my graduation. It was really, really cool. Awesome. I know that, uh, I know one thing, that Marine Corps dress uniform is pretty, pretty nice to look at too. Hey, I, I, I appreciate it. I still got it hanging in my closet to where whenever I walk in there, I got my medals hanging on there. It's in a clear plastic bag and I can see it and I still get, uh, you know, still get the, the, those feelings. No doubt. No doubt. Well, the first time you were in, you were, uh, you know, your first tour was aviation ordinance. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Tim. It was a cool job. You know, my recruiter pitched me on the idea. He said, you did pretty well on your ASVAB. You qualify for these jobs. One of them is aviation ordinance. You'll put bombs together. So, um, you know, imagine a, a aviation bomb, fixed wing bomb, it doesn't come completely assembled. So you got to get the fuse and the fins and the army wire, all that other stuff, um, and literally assemble it in an assembly line. So I thought that the job sounded kind of cool. 17 years old and you're telling me I get to put bombs together. Yeah, man, I'm in. <laughs> so, um, I like blowing stuff up, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, over the period of, uh, school was about four or five months long transition through school. And, uh, my first duty station, that was Iwakuni, Japan. Really, really cool experience in Iwakuni, Japan. But while I was there, and this is, this is kind of a, a tangent, but while I was there in 95, the uh, Amshirikyo terrorist group bombed the subway with sarin gas at Nerve Agent. And uh, I got to see that firsthand, you know, what happens with all of that stuff, which is, which is kind of interesting because that, you know, affected me in my career sometime later. Well, back, back to the aviation ordinance thing is uh, after my first tour to our duty in Japan, I came back to the United States. I was at New River um, Marine Corps Air Station, New River, for a couple of years. I pinned on Corporal E-4, and there was an opportunity to go to the schoolhouse. Most of the time, schoolhouse tour is a twilight tour. That's for your guys that are E-7s, E-8s, that are... I want to say skate, but they're, they're looking for uh, an easier tour towards the end of their career. And here I am. I got accepted, went to instructor school, and now I'm an instructor at the schoolhouse, kind of bumping my head against the glass ceiling. I figured everything else after that is just going to be kind of boring. So uh, reenlistment time came up, and um, there's a big, big poster in the re- reenlistment office for the recruiter. He was retention specialist. I can't remember what his name was, but it was, uh, make a lap move to EOD explosive ordinance disposal. And, you know, being an aviation ordinance guy, if we screwed up, I knew we would call one of those guys. I was like, Hmm, that sounds really interesting. Let me go talk to those dudes. And that's how I started my transition into EOD as I reenlisted. I had to go through a recruiting process. There was a screening process. You sit down with, uh, an officer and a staff NCO, 
They put you in a bomb suit. There's a, a physical fitness test that you do. You go through a psychological evaluation because it's a, a, a voluntary MOS. And I qualified and, uh, and I had orders. And um, before I knew it, I was down at Eglin Air Force Base at EOD school. So, you know, you said that you were um, stationed there with your brother when you when you made it to D.C.? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And so you were decontaminating the anthrax scare. Tell us a little bit about that. And your brother's a Marine, obviously. Yeah, my brother enlisted uh, only about a year after I did. He saw the good that it did for me. You know, he was there at my graduation, and then we had spent some time when I was on leave a couple times and uh, saw the difference that it made for me. And he was in community college. But he didn't see any direction. He didn't really see any light at the end of the tunnel. So he wanted to give it a change. After I graduated from uh, EOD school, I was uh, we were we were in a formation. It was uh, time to kind of pick orders. And sometimes there's duty stations that some people want more than others. Seaburf was not one of them. Oh yeah, uh, the, the the Marine Corps Chemical Biological Incident Response Force. Nobody wanted to go there. Marines in general, and you you know you can speak on behalf of the guys in the army. We don't like gas masks. <laughs> no, I remember you know mop level four. Nobody liked it. They go, why did you pick that? You know that MOS. And you know what? Honestly, I don't know why, but but it was interesting and certainly learned a lot. Yeah, nobody wanted to be in that suit. But <laughs> that's true. The 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 master guns. Our leadership at the school said, hey, we got this opening at Seaburf. Well, that's where my brother's at. I, I figured, you know, screw it. Let me, let me go uh, get stationed with my brother. That'd be really, really cool. And uh, and I pulled the trigger. And uh, that was just shortly after September 11th. I was actually in training on September 11th. Shortly after September 11th, you know, drove up to the school or uh, drove up from the schoolhouse, got settled into the uh, into the lifestyle into the barracks up there, and we we got our first mission. And our first mission was to decontaminate and mitigate the uh, the anthrax out of Senator Daschle's office. The EPA had contracted a third-party team, uh, probably a private contract or something like that, uh, and the company had gone bankrupt because of the size and scope of the project. Now, when you think of an office, you know, generally speaking, you might think of a doctor's office has got one or two rooms, maybe. Not the case for a senator. Senator's got you know, multiple offices, several staffers, common areas, soda machines, you know, a Xerox room, the whole, the whole thing. So our mission was to, uh, to go in after that team that the EPA had hired and basically remove everything from ceiling tile down to carpet, break it up into little pieces, bag it up in these really thick mill um, garbage bags for the EPA to take out and then go destroy. I'm sure they incinerated it, but let me tell you some of the challenges of doing that. You're dressed up in your uh, in level A, so you're on supplied air. It only lasts about 45 minutes. You've got to go through decontamination at the end because this is a live live zone. Right. You got Marines. Well, you got Marines. And you're telling them, all right, break everything down into little pieces. Well, there were soda machines in there and big Xerox copy machines and the senator's gigantic desk. And uh, to break that up into little pieces to put in the bags, we needed to bring in sawzalls and power tools and the daggone jaws of life to, you know, break things apart. It, I think the entire mission lasted a better part of about a month, um, but we did it. And, and um, we did it on time. 
not sure if we did it on uh, on budget. I, I can't imagine what kind of budget they had allocated for us, but it was a uh, it was a great it was a great mission. And uh, although I didn't get to blow anything up, um, I, I consider it part of history. Yeah, good for you, man. That's great work. So you know, speaking of blowing things up, and not to be trite, but tell us about your first deployment to Iraq. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, two thousand six. Uh, I was really fortunate. And I, I say I was fortunate. I was fortunate, right? In, in the Marine Corps and the Army and Navy and Air Force, if you get to lead um, in your career, you know, you consider yourself blessed. I was fortunate to take out a group of professionals out to Iraq. I still keep in touch with a large majority of them. And we went to MNF West, uh, flew into uh, Kuwait, hopped on a plane from Kuwait out to Fallujah. We did the relief in place for the Marines that were there before us who had a terrible tour, those poor guys. We lost five or six EOD techs that I could remember. And to put that into perspective, at the time, there was only about 300, maybe 320, 330 EOD techs in the entire Marine Corps. So you're talking about losing five or six guys. You're talking about dropping an entire percentage point. That's a lot. And being such a small community, man, we all know each other really, really well. And if you never sat down and drank beer with the guy, at least you know his name, where he's from, and if he's a good guy or not. So it's pretty hard hitting. What were some of the missions like? What was tell us a little bit about those missions? Yeah, so the average uh, we flew into we flew into Fallujah and then we dispersed the teams. So each uh, each area of operation had between between one and two teams, two man teams, depending on uh, how hot that area was. I went to Fallujah. I had two two man teams. And uh, the average day, we were doing between 12 to 15 calls for improvised explosive devices, UXOs, unexploded ordnance, enemies' weapons, cash, a booby-trapped house, a car bomb. I mean, you name it. Any kind of weapon that, that uh, you know, had, had some kind of explosives behind it, we were getting called on. So the standard, the standard you know, operating procedure was if some of the infantry guys found something, or if there was a convoy that saw something suspicious on the side of the road, uh, the guys in tanks, whatever, saw something, or there was intel, uh, they would give us a call, the EOD guys, they would give us a call, we'd get our nine line, which is basically nine lines of information that told you where the thing was, what unit was attached to, all of that other good stuff, and we would roll out. We had uh, two security trucks with us, with uh, Marines with big machine guns, and uh, we would follow out a GPS tracking system out to the site and uh, start our procedures. Procedures depended on every, everyone was different, all depended on the terrain, the cover, the concealment, what type of activity was in the area. Always, always had to be thinking dynamically. Take a look at the entire battle space to start making your next decision and, uh, and kind of formulate a plan from there. So not not. Every call, gosh, I would probably say not any call was exactly like the one before. Even if it was a device that we had seen before, it could have been in a completely different environment. So we would have to react a little bit differently or customize an approach, which, man, for, um, you know, later on in my life, not just uh, not just living day to day, but also starting businesses and working within corporate America. And that really went a long way and understanding and working in dynamic environments like that uh, for success. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes we don't know it at the time, but the things that are right in front of us 
or sometimes the you know the things that we rely on later on in life. I know that you were uh, relaying to me a moment that you had in Iraq about being in the mess hall. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? For sure. I remember the story. Um, we were talking about uh, an impactful moment that I had uh, into Iraq, and, and maybe maybe this will uh, maybe this will land squarely for some people. Maybe some people might think it's silly, but we flew in under the cover of, of darkness from Kuwait into Iraq, and uh, landed in Iraq in Fallujah. Rolled out to the Chow Hall pretty early in the morning, five six a.m. The sun's just coming up, and you did, I didn't really have. Because I'd never deployed there before, I didn't really have a full grasp on uh, on the size and scope of the war because I hadn't been there before. Now you could hear numbers on TV, right? And Fox News or CNN reports, you know, hundreds of thousands of of military and coalition forces. You don't really get an appreciation of that until you're right there, man, and you see it firsthand. So we got off of our vehicles. We we go form in line to get into the Chow Hall. We walk in, and when I tell you this place was like the size of Home Depot times like a hundred, is just a scratch of the surface. It's gigantic. It's the biggest chow hall I've ever been in, and there's literally what what I remember, and this is my own memory, is there's got to be thousands of people in here, and I was just way taken back off my heels, like God. Look at all these, there's a lot of people here that are here to serve our country and help these people in Iraq get out from underneath the thumb of these dictator. And I was just, man, it was just a moment of motivation for me. And and I don't know why that stuck, stuck out to me and why it still sticks out to me right now. But it's just like this feeling of overwhelming, like, oh, it was pride. It was like, I'm, I'm part of this big group of these, you know, awesome folks and here we are again, part of history. It's, it was just really, really cool for me. I don't know why that always stuck out to me. Well, thanks for sharing that. And those that have been in that mess hall could probably relate in a huge way. You know, Tim, tell us tell us about the day that, that, that you got wounded, that you got blown up. What, what, what was going through your head and what were you guys actually doing? Right. It was a normal day. Uh, like the beginning of our conversation was, was just kind of unremarkable. Um, there wasn't anything weird about the day. It was December 11th in 2006, the day I'll always remember. And it was my day on rotation. And I was over at the gym with my, uh, with my teammate. We had our radio in hand. We we're going to do some lifting before the day started. It was always good for us to, uh, kind of take our mind off of what was going on around us was to get some exercise. And I just like lifting heavy things. So we're in the gym lifting weights, got a call on the radio says, hey, the, uh, there's a nine line coming in. Get your way back to the shop, which was literally like a block away. It wasn't that big a deal. So uh, we, uh, we picked up our stuff, hauled butt back to the shop, and uh, we get the printout, and we're on our way. The, the area I was very familiar with was, uh, was Karma and Twins. Any Iraq that was out there in that area will probably, little hairs will stick up on the back of your neck when you hear those. But it was a bad area. It was pretty hot. And... Um, yeah, we, we had gotten into plenty uh, plenty action in there before. So we were driving out, and this area in particular has a lot of unimproved roads. And the guy that I had relieved, uh, his name is Dan, is uh, he told me, hey, you go down this one road in particular, you should lead first with your truck because the bad guys, they'll tend to bury some stuff in there. And we've had some calls, so just lead out in front. And uh, I took his word, um, took it as advice, 
And when we got to that road, I told my driver, I said, Hey, you know, let's, let's leave from the front, tell the, tell the security guy to back off. And, uh, we took point and driving down that unimproved road. It's funny because I still, it's one of those things that stick out. I had, uh, I was smoking a cigarette and I was opening up the door, threw it out the door. I saw some potholes in front of us. And, uh, I told the guys in the back, I said, hold on, it's about to get bumpy. And I swear it was in within just a split second. Boom. We got hit and we got rocked hard. Uh, the vehicle that I was in weighed 33,000 pounds. It was the MRAP and it picked up our vehicle and had to move us 10, 15 feet off of the path, uh, completely, completely incinerated the tires. I mean, there was nothing to find of the tires and those are the big four foot off road, you know, tough tires. Uh, the entire side of my vehicle, any toolboxes or, or anything that like that, that was attached to the vehicle was gone, completely gone. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we were all knocked out. We were all unconscious, uh, probably for a couple of minutes. Um, you know, when you get into a situation like that, it's, it's really dynamic. So you don't, you don't really think about, you know, Hey, start time. Let's mark time now. Um, but it felt like a couple minutes. Well, we had rehearsed this before. Um, what's gonna, what happens if uh, somebody gets blown up? So we had a, uh, we had a pretty good routine, you know, baked in the cake. So without getting into our routine and, and giving away any kind of, you know, magic ingredients, we, we ran the play, right? Right. And, um, one of the things that was scary for me and my, and my partner was one of the, one of the techniques or tactics that the bad guys would do is they blow up a vehicle and then when Marines came to help the people in that vehicle, they would have a secondary bomb hidden somewhere nearby and then they would function that one. So I was like right on the, right on the top of my mind. I was like, these guys are going to kill me and uh, I'm going to have to get out of the truck and, and look for it anyway. So, you know, I, I, you know, asked for, uh, asked for guidance and, uh, from, from my God jumped out of the truck and, uh, started looking for that secondary device. Fortunately, we didn't find one. Um, that didn't stop us with, from, from looking for what felt like 15, 20 minutes. Right. And by then the infantry guys came in that, uh, that called us there in the first place. They provided a, a security cordon for us and we got medevaced out. We, uh, fortunately we didn't have any amputations, but we did have some pretty, uh, pretty good injuries, broken bones, uh, robot in the back flew around a little bit, smashed some noses up. Um, my helmet, because it was, uh, the blast was underneath my seat. I hit my head on the, on the armored part of the inside of the vehicle and literally cracked my helmet in half. Kevlar helmet broken into two pieces. So I'll give you an idea, the type of, uh, the type of injuries that I, that I've gotten away with some, some brain injuries, um, spine and lower back injuries. Um, uh, however, I was ambulatory. I got out of the vehicle and I kept on with the fight until it was time to medevac out. And that vehicle saved my butt. That helmet, you know, there's a good example too. You know, we used to hate putting those things on, but of course my stuff was all peacetime. You, you learn firsthand that without that helmet, you're probably dead. Oh, I would have squished my brain like a grape. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad your buddies made it, you know, without having serious, serious injuries, you know, that would have taken their lives. But so after that, it led to you getting out of the Marine Corps? I did. Uh, I, I stayed in country. I got medevaced out to Balad, and Balad was uh, basically a resting place 
for guys that were on their way to Germany or wherever they had to go to to uh, finish the medevac process and get evaluated further. Um, you know, I, I wasn't going to have it. Uh, we had a really bad tour before I got there, and I just did not want to leave my guys behind. So I did everything I could to get out of the hospital, got on the helicopter, went back to my unit, um, got, got in a little bit of uh, – <laughs> A little bit of trouble for that. That's all right. It was worth it to me. I wasn't able, I wasn't allowed to leave the wire anymore. Um, that saying that I, for, if you're not familiar with the term, I wasn't allowed to leave the base to go fight anymore. However, I could stay inside of the base and help with my guys. If it came to their vehicles or supply needs, or if they needed more explosives or tools or equipment, whatever. Um, when we redeployed back to the United States, when we got out of, uh, out of Iraq, I went to go see a doctor in a real hospital, a place that had MRIs and CAT scans and such. And they took a really good look at me, ran a battery of tests, and were like, Tim, you're, or I think say, Tim Gunny, you're, you're pretty messed up. And uh, we need to think about med board for you to get out of the Marine Corps. So that's that's what put me out in 2007. So, you know, Tim, well, thanks for, for uh, what you did over there and appreciate you uh telling us some of those things about what happened. Can you, so tell us about your transition, but what I really want to get at, let's, we can talk about transition. I really want to get at what you're doing now, a little bit about the franchise, but really how that led to where you're at. Tell us about, so transition franchise and where you're at now. And then I got a couple of questions to ask you after that. So tell us about that. Cool. I appreciate that. When I transitioned was was incredibly smooth. I was really, really fortunate. There was a company and startup called AT Solutions, Anti-Terrorism Solutions. It was basically uh, a cohort of EOD guys that would go to bases and train EOD guys. Uh, so talk about talk about a smooth transition. It was literally taking the uniform off and putting another one on, still hanging out with the same guys. You know, same mission without getting blown up or shot at. I had a blast with it. It lasted seven years. They let me do some really, really cool stuff to include working over there at the FBI. Uh, that's when I finished grad school and thought I'd try out corporate America. And I did. Uh, I got recruited to uh, be the explosive safety officer at Halliburton. It was a fantastic company. Really, really cool people. But if you follow energy and oil, you know, they took a beating. It wasn't just Halliburton, but everybody in, in energy took a beating. So I decided to start a franchise. Uh, J-Dog Junk Removal and Hauling. I bought a, I bought a territory, single territory here in Houston. And uh, with the help of an investor and uh, a little bit of mentoring, was able to, um, I'm going to say blow that up. No pun intended. I was able to scale. How about that? No, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> How about that for a business term? We scaled it big time, wound up with eight locations across the United States, about 100, 100 employees. We even had a reality show on TV on uh, the Lifetime Network called Military Makeover. So it was, went, went really, really well. But what I, what I attributed that success to, now I've got a bachelor's degree. It's in business management, but it's not in, in business. It was more of a leadership-leaning degree. I didn't know how to read a PNL. I couldn't tell you what strategic marketing strategies were or anything else like that. I didn't know how to set goals or how to measure success. So I got with my mentor, the business uh, majority majority shareholder on a company, and I admitted and said, I need a little help on the business side. What can we do? 
And that's when he put me in touch with a guy named Ben. I got to give big shout outs to Ben Berman. He was my implementer for EOS. And, uh, and basically what EOS is, is you nailed it. It's the Entrepreneur's Operating System. Uh, it was developed by a guy named Gina Winkman. And it's this really, really cool, off-the-shelf, fully developed set of tools that any business person can use to grow their business, to scale. It helps you define what your core values are, what's your core focus, what are you going after, and where does, where does success end, and what does it look like, right? Anybody can sit down and say, I want to make a million dollars. All right, Roger that. How are you going to do it? Well, this gives you the steps and the tools to get to that million dollars or the 10-year goal or a 15-year goal really by doing three things. Figuring out what your vision for the company is. Like what is what does it look like? What are your core values? What does it look like in 10 years from now? How are you going to make, you know, how are you going to make the company what you want to make it to? The next thing is traction. That's holding the people that you're in your company accountable to your scorecard, your measurables, to the core values. You know, core values will attract a lot of people, uh, the right people that you want to work with, but they'll also repel people that you don't want to work with. And we, no matter where you work at, you've probably worked with somebody you're like, eh, I could do without Bob. Um, but once you get that synergy going and everybody literally rowing in the right direction at the same time, you get healthy. And what healthy is, that's the third component of EOS. It's literally everybody at work is rowing in the same direction. People are being held accountable and you're happy to show up to work. You like what you do. Productivity goes up. Effectiveness of communication goes up. And that magic and the synergy that happens with that man, I was able to get that early on because I brought this implementer on um, right up at the beginning of our career. But you don't have to. You don't have to be a startup. I mean, you can be a company that's been around five, 10, 15 years. The the best clients for me are companies that are like that. They got between ten, maybe 200, 250 employees. They're doing right around three to five million in revenue, and they're bumping up against a ceiling, or they've just thrown spaghetti at the wall. Nothing seems to work. They're just kind of grinding it out. And honestly. They're being successful in spite of themselves. So well, you know, you well, go, uh, just real quick, I'm glad that you mentioned core values because, you know, a lot of people seem to forget the core values. I'm glad that's part of your program. I had a uh, Army infantry buddy of mine, another a combat veteran, tell me that, you know, write down your core values, stick with them. And this could be life and in business, as you just pointed out, Tim. And he said, if you if you get off of them, Find a way to get back to them. But that core value set at the heart of everything you do, if you believe in it and you do the things that you're talking about here, you can have great success. But so I just wanted to put that in there. And I'm glad you mentioned core values. For sure. For sure. And I, and I appreciate appreciate the inject. The the core values, there's there's it's not it's not only a great idea to have them and they're coming back like really, really hard. Core values are coming back in corporate America, but it's also extremely therapeutic to put them down on paper and share them with everybody in your company. If you have that shared, that information shared with your company, and I mean everybody in your company understands what your core values are, where you're going as a company, why you want to get there. Now, now you don't have you know this wishy-washy kind of culture of people just punching a clock. 
Now people are showing up because they want to be there. They believe in the core values of the company. They understand what their measurables are. Even if it's the guy that's, you know, just brand new on the sales floor, I'm Nick, the new guy. I got to make 20 calls a day, schedule three appointments a week and close one deal. Bam, there's my numbers. And this is why, man, that kind of positive energy and that synergy with everybody inside of the company just does wonderful stuff. That's awesome. I'm glad. I, I love that because, and, and I'm, and I like the fact that you say core values are coming back. You know, in today's digital world, people can be whatever they want, and a lot of times, sometimes what they try to portray is not what they is not who they really are. But people can see through core values and they can identify them real quick. What do you think about that? I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I think we went through a period of time. Not just uh, not just in the United States, but globally, um, kind of after being, I don't I don't know what the right word for it, institutionalized, if you will, in kind of this digital age where it's just kind of, it's not as touchy feely, it's not really you know as personable as things used to be. You're seeing a big departure from emails and you know digital marketing back to a a more personable, hey, you know what? I want to get a hold of this guy. Let me give him a phone call. I'm not going to send him an email. Let me give him a phone call. Let me say hello. Let him hear my voice. I'd like to hear his. Maybe we can connect on a business level. But I'll tell you what, I've got a lot of connections on LinkedIn. i got a lot of followers. The best connections I've made so far are on a personal level. It's with guys like you, John, and a whole bunch of other people on LinkedIn that are just wholesome, good folks. We might never do business, or we might do great business for each other, but I tell you what, relationships are a whole lot more valuable than a bottom line. Absolutely, and I, you know, it's funny you say that because there's a lot more to life than just being um, profitable. There's a lot more to, I mean, those are all important things, but proficiency and efficiency, and sometimes just busy work. There's a lot more to life than that, and I couldn't agree with you more, Tim. Sometimes the, the personal contact, the phone calls that we had prior to this interview. They mean all the, that means a lot, you know, because you're talking to a real person. And you know what? You're not one of those guys, Tim, that ghosted. I can't tell you how many people that I have talked to that, that talk a big game and then the next thing you know, they're gone. And I'm not passing judgment. It just seems to be the way of the world. And I got to say, everybody listening, Tim Collimer does not ghost. He's not a ghost. He's a, he's a real Marine and he's a, he's a guy that really cares about your business. So I know you had a franchise. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Then I got some really important questions to ask, but tell us about your experience with the franchise. Yeah, I, I don't mind plugging uh, J-Dog Junk Removal and Hauling at, at all. It's a great group of people. They're based out of Philly. Uh, Jerry Flanagan is the founder, uh, as well as president of the organization. What they do is uh, they provide the American dream to veterans. It's easy entry, uh, doesn't cost a lot. I started the, my, my business started literally with a credit card. Uh, I got a, a low interest rate credit card, bought the franchise, leased a vehicle and a trailer, and uh, boom, I was off, off and running. Um, my vision with my company, though, was a little bit different because I was a bigger company was I was trying to hire veterans. You know, being a veteran myself, I understand transition. I was trying to hire veterans that were in transition with flexible hours. So we had guys that were going to college. I had guys that were going to trade school, HVAC school. I had guys that were going to the police academy. And they worked really, really well together. And uh, while they weren't going to do their training, 
They were working at J-Dog. We would do stuff like cleaning out houses, attics, garages, backyards. Up north, we had basements, things like that. And uh, we got into a really good rhythm and pattern of recycling, reusing stuff, renewing things. Did a ton of donations. Got a, I can't even tell you probably how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of stuff that we would donate either to the military order of the Purple Heart or disabled American veterans or the, uh, the Vietnam veterans. Um, and then also we, we uh, dependent on which location we're talking about, my managers there had their own kind of personal, you know, obviously their own stories, but their own personal charities that I like to give to. Battered Wives Shelter, I had a, a partner out in uh, Phoenix named Lacey. She was a former police officer also, and um, she would give to uh, charities that you know touched her heart. So it was really cool. Uh, I'm blessed and lucky to have been a part of it, and uh, I'm glad the mission goes on. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. You know, let me ask you a couple questions here, Tim, and you know, dig deep, brother. What would you like the civilian population to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? Ooh, that's a, that's a fantastic question. It really depends. Gosh, I, um, that's, that's such a broad question. Here, here's what I'd like, like for them to know, especially about combat veterans is I think there's just too big of a broad brushstroke when it comes to combat veterans when you start thinking about how we're portrayed in TV and in the movies and in media and things that, that combat veterans are broken when they come back, everybody's got PTSD or issues or whatever. Well, I could tell you anybody that's listening to this knows that everybody's got issues. You know, we're no different than anybody else. We've seen some pretty scary stuff, been through some traumatic incidents, but not all of us. I tell you the majority of the guys in the military, guys and girls in the military, um, probably never even left the base that they were on. It doesn't make them, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, but it's just true. Um, so don't, don't paint with a broad brush when it comes to uh, kind of portraying veterans as, as kind of broken. We've got even, even through the hardest things that we've all survived, the large majority of us have, have picked ourselves back up, dusted ourselves off, and said, you know what? It's time for the next mission. And uh, we bring a lot of really cool, soft skills with us, leadership, mentoring, education, stuff that we learned in the military. I've got guys that I could give you a laundry list of guys and examples of that um, that were bomb squad guys, but they had all of these other really cool things that they were good at, woodworking and metalworking and, I mean, really, really, you know, weird things. But 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 regardless, you know, stop. And, and I, you know, not I hope it doesn't sound accusatory, but just Stop looking at veterans like we're uh, we're any different than anybody else. We just had a a different job for a space of time. That's a good answer. And uh, you know, I ne- I always ask that question to people that are on straight out of combat. And you know, what's kind of funny, Tim? I haven't gotten the same answer. I get I've had 118, 119 different answers about what freedom means. And so, thanks for sharing. You know what what combat veterans mean to the community. And you know, so tell me what you think they mean to the community. A lot of combat veterans, uh, um, no matter where they were at in in, uh, in life by age is what I mean, really. You know, guys are 18, 19, 20, all the way up to guys who are 38, 40, 41 that are combat veterans. Because they've gone through that and they've gone through a hardship and they've gone through some really intense trials and, uh, you know, a lot of cases trial by fire, 
Um, what you'll find is they've, they've developed a little bit of a callus, a little bit of a blister when it comes to hard times. We're a little bit more durable, if you will be. Um, when it comes to uh, being put in positions where some people are just uncomfortable, it's probably a great thing. We're a little bit more thick-skinned. Uh, we, we're A lot of people don't think we're approachable. I think that makes us more approachable, uh, to be frank. If, uh, if you were to come to a person, you know, two different people with the same issue, would you want to go to somebody that's overly sensitive or would you want to go to somebody that just says, spit it out? I can take it no matter what the news is, whatever the conversation, whatever the question is, just lay it on me. I think that's a huge plus to us, uh, especially in the kind of culture that we're being developed in now. I think people just need to get a little bit more tough. That's a good answer. So let's say I'm a brother, I'm a sister out there that wore the uniform. I've transitioned back you know, out of a combat zone and I'm finding myself in a real funky place. I'm not doing real well. What would you tell them, Tim? Reach out to another veteran. There are, nah, I would say millions. I'll be, I'll be realistic. There's probably hundreds, no matter where you're at in the United States, hundreds of places online where you can reach out, whether it's a veteran service organization like the Wounded Warrior Project Project Next Hope, or whatever the whatever the veteran service organization is, they're there. But then there's also something local there for you. I don't care if you live in the smallest town in the United States or New York City, there's going to be a veteran service organization near you. Go to a VFW, go to an, uh, uh, any one of those clubs, go to USO. And if you can't find that spirit camaraderie that you're looking for, I would be hard pressed to think that you don't have a friend that's still in the military or somebody that you got out with that uh, wore the uniform with you that you could lean on. And, and if you can't, if you're the unicorn that can't find that type of, of support and that type of structure, go to a person that wasn't in, in uniform and ask them if they know somebody that was in uniform. I think the, the degrees of separation between people that served and people that didn't serve are a whole lot thinner than we realize. That's a great answer. So thank you for that. Uh, Let me ask you this. And, you know, I alluded to it just a minute ago. What does freedom mean to you? You asked me that question when the, uh, the first time that we talked on the phone was, and I gotta be honest, I've been trying to, trying to walk through that and try to ponder what it, what it means to me. Um, and, and I know it means something different to everybody and, and probably everybody in the world. What it means to me is to be able to live your life in, in, uh, in a way that makes sense to you, whether it's part of your moral compass or it's spiritually, if it's physically, psychologically, whatever your beliefs are, whatever you hold dear to you and your family, it's being able to live that life without interruption. I'm not going to say without judgment because it goes, you know, it goes without saying everybody's judged, whether you're judged on earth or you get judged by your creator, everybody's going to be judged, but without living that life, without somebody stopping you or saying that you can't do it because X, whatever X is, nobody cares, but, but living your life uninterrupted and being able to do what you want to do according to your own will, that's freedom to me. That's a great answer. Let me ask you this, Tim. How anybody out there listening? How can people make contact with you to find out more about you and your company? 
Do you live by a, a special mantra every day? I don't know if I could say it on your podcast, to be honest with you. You can say anything, man. It's, it's our show, brother. All right. Wake up, kick ass, repeat. There you go, man. You know, I, I, I it on a plaque. It's in my office. If somebody wants to get a hold of me, uh, my email address is timothy at columnaradvisories.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Timothy Colomer. Uh, last name is spelled C-O-L-O-M-E-R. Um, there's only two Tim Colomers in the United States, and the other one is my son. So if uh, if you don't see a big, bald guy with uh, tattoos and a thick neck, then you got the wrong one. But please take a look for me on Google and LinkedIn and uh, make a connection. I'd, I'd love to talk to you if it's not about business, maybe about military, not about military, anything that you have going on in your, uh, in, in your civilian life that you'd like to talk about. I love making connections, love meeting new people, and uh, I'm always open for a phone call or a chat. That's awesome, Tim. You know, I'm glad that we, uh, I'm glad that you reached out to me on LinkedIn and I got to tell you, man, I'm just glad that you, uh, that you're back here and you're safe and that, you know, you're raising your family. I know you're out in Houston. Uh, just thanks for sharing all of your stuff. And, and, I, and I just, you know, your story is valuable. Somebody out there is listening. And, and if we can help one person, whether it's in business or through something personal in their life, then you've helped, uh, you've helped us to accomplish that mission on Straight Outta Combat. I look forward to meeting you in person. And, you know, I just wish you safety during this coronavirus uh, situation. And uh, again, I look forward to the to the meetup when we can when we can actually see each other face to face. But uh, do you mind? Do you mind if I have one save round? No, go ahead, man. You've done this a lot. Obviously, I, I got on your on your uh, on your iPod uh, cast and, and I've gone through all of the shows and the episodes. And, and I've got to tell you, from veteran to veteran, man to man. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I don't think you get enough thanks. And for what you're doing for a community, for a nation, for spreading the word, for connecting that civilian veteran, I don't know, gap. But you're doing God's work, man. John, I really appreciate what you're doing. Keep kicking ass. Wake up, repeat. And I look forward to hearing this this from myself. Hey, Tim, thanks for that, man. I got to tell you, you just named the episode. I love you, brother. I'm glad you're back and uh, God bless you. And uh, you brought a tear to my eye, man. I, I appreciate that. And uh, it's nice. It, it's nice for you to say that. I, I really I really mean that. Thanks. Absolutely, John. God bless. God bless. You gotta up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. <laughs>